I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, how a couple of teenagers created an iconic American hero. I mean, he couldn't fly yet, and he didn't have heat vision and freeze breath. That would all come later, but it was absolutely Superman. Then there's a divide in America, and it starts really early in our lives. By three years of age, you're already going to see that gap among lower-income and middle-income families. It's dramatic. It's dramatic. Plus, serious controversy behind a seemingly harmless board game. That's quite racy at the time. I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous, but that's kind of crossing social boundaries. And one of the competitors at the time was like, you're you're selling sex in a box. This is outrageous. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is a story about a guy you know, and you've probably known him for a long time. He completely transformed an industry, changed American storytelling, and began his rise to fame 80 years ago in 1938. The fame he achieved was stratospheric. He was renowned for his strength, his speed, and his dorkiness. But for all his fame and all the love that was directed his way, he in some ways is a tragic character. And that's what he is, a character, not a real person. The real people who created him, two teenagers named Jerry and Joe, they knew they had done something brilliant. It's just that no one around them seemed to get it. No one understood that this character could be huge. Superman, of course, was a massive hit. And when someone finally did have an inkling of Superman's greatness, they snapped up the character for $130. For Jerry and Joe, their greatest achievement instantly became a great tragedy. Brad Ricca tells this story in the book Superboys, The Amazing Adventures of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman. Brad, welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks. So... We are in this moment uh, where it feels like comic book heroes are everywhere. Half the movies, it feels like, are based on, you know, Wonder Woman or Captain America or Black Panther. Um, But it was not, of course, always like that. Um, Can you talk about what the comic book industry was like in the 1930s when Superman came on the scene? Yeah, that's a great question because it's so hard for us to imagine. I mean, even when I was growing up in the 80s, it was, you know, if I wanted to read my issue of X-Men, I'd have to hide it in my trapper keeper and not let anyone (laughs) see it because I was afraid someone would would beat me up. You know, nobody read comics. (laughs) And now everybody watches the movies and and has the shirts and and everything. But where it started in the the 30s and and a little bit before was, you know, in the newspapers. Everybody read The Funnies in the Great Depression. It's really interesting. Here in in Cleveland, our paper is The Plain Dealer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, during the Depression, we'd report on all this bleak stuff. But then you'd get to the Sunday Funnies, and they were like 12 pages of color comics because this was the escape for people. And they would read Popeye and Buck Rogers and uh, you name it. And, And that's where it really 
got going and mm. then, you know, people got smart and said, well, if we could take the funnies and just fold them a little and staple them, we right. could sell them as comic books. Right, right. And that's how it started. So tell me a little bit about Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who created Superman. And, you know, you think, oh, this is this most amazing creation. I mean, if, if somebody created Superman, you'd be so impressed. But these were kids, and they were kids when they created Superman. I mean, this was like a side sort of after-school project almost. Yeah, and and I think that's always been one of the best parts of the story for me is that they were kids, and they were best friends, and they went to uh, Glenville High School, which was a um, an eastern suburb of Cleveland, heavily Jewish suburb. And they were best friends kind of because they were nerds. You know, they both had glasses. They were small. They didn't play football. And Jerry Siegel, who would become the writer, loved science fiction Mm. and loved reading all that kind of stuff. And um, Joe Schuster, who would become the artist, uh, you know, loved to draw. He loved the Sunday funnies and would draw and, and get whatever he could you know, his parents couldn't afford art classes, so he would just trace things from the paper and, and from magazines. And they just really wanted it. And they didn't know what they were doing, and right. that was their greatest strength. Mm. You talked about that they're from Jewish families, and they actually lived in this, like, Jewish neighborhood of Cleveland, and people were, uh, like, older folks would be on the street corners speaking Yiddish to each other. And, you mm-hmm. know, it was a very tight-knit neighborhood, but both of their families had come out of these really terrible anti-Semitic immigrant experiences. And I just wonder if you think that that immigrant experience, which uh, shaped their families, but then also kind of shaped this world that they lived in, too, if that informed their love of comic books, their creation of, of Superman. I think it completely did. And that was one of the great surprises I found in, in looking into Superman's origins is that it wasn't just an, an economic deal for these two kids to mm-hmm. make money or, or just create this really cool thing, is they were putting their lives into it. And to me, that just changes the whole story. And yeah, both of their families really narrowly escaped anti-Semitic mass violence mm-hmm. in Europe. And it's that's the story of Krypton. You know, Krypton's exploding yep, yep. Um, and being destroyed and they mm-hmm. just run away and they make it to this new world of America. And yet they're still aliens. You know, they speak this strange language and, and have yeah. all these strange <laughs> customs. Right. And, and Jerry and Joe are, are first generation Americans and they they're part of that heritage, but they push back against it too. So there there's that whole thing about Clark, you know, coming to Earth and finding his place. But as you say, that you know, these were also these were American kids, and they were very influenced by the world around them, by Hollywood, by characters that they were reading about. Talk about some of the people, but they don't have to be real people, who um, influenced uh, Siegel and Schuster as they're kind of, you know, incubating maybe these ideas for Superman. Yeah, incubating is a great word. I like to think of it kind of as Superman is the Frankenstein's monster (laughs) of 30s American pop culture. And some people don't like that because they think, oh, it's this great creation. It should live on its own. But I think it's great because that's what what pop culture is. So they love the movies. There's a lot of Harold Lloyd in uh, Clark Kent, I think. Yeah, a silent uh – 
film star. I think he's largely forgotten now, but a great star, like a Charlie Chaplin kind of person, right? Yeah, and really funny, really clumsy, and he has the glasses, uh-huh. and he's always tripping over himself, mm-hmm. and, and they loved it. And he's always has, you know, problems with the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. But the, there's, you know, the costume they took from strong men were really popular back then. You would pay a dime and go see these big Polish men lift things over their head, and, and they wore the underwear on the oh, outside, really? like, okay, like okay. Superman yeah, does, yeah. and the short capes. <laughs> and one of the coolest ones I found was, you know, they wanted to make Superman the fastest man in the world. And I found uh, an image of him that was a trace from a newspaper of Jesse Owens, uh, who was, yes. was in Cleveland and was the fastest man in the world. And, and of course, his story, and I think it's just so cool that they're basing Superman's super speed off off of Jesse Owens. But yeah, they took from from all over to create the even his hair. They stole from Tarzan. You know, we think of the classic spit curl on Superman. Mm-hmm. You know, where'd that come from? It's it's Johnny Weismuller. Hmm. So obviously Siegel and Schuster they created a lot of things. They uh, were writing in their high school newspapers. They were you know, they they had a, an idea minute in terms of uh, really trying to be successful in writing comics. Was Superman just one more of the many things they created? Was this the thing they thought was going to be their blockbuster? Like, just give me a sense of where Superman fit in for them. Yeah, so you said it perfect. They worked on all kinds of different comics. They had crime comics and romance comics, humor comics, trying to figure out what would work. But there's a really early one in high school that's just a story that Joe illustrates, and it has a Superman in it. They call him the Superman, hmm. uh, except he's bald and he's evil and he has totally different powers. Okay. And it's it's really a plagiarized story from the pulps because, you know, they're kids. They don't know what they're doing. They just are trying different um, – using all methods at their disposal. And the story didn't work. But they really liked the name. And I think Superman was the one character that they knew there was something more to. And once they Mm. realized they could make him a good character, they spent a lot of time on him, Mm. for one. But also the other part of it is is that when they started getting rejections for it, they sent it everywhere, uh, they really didn't change it. And I think that's a real kind of of Midwest thing, you know, don't tell me I'm wrong. Um, (laughs) But it's also an artist thing uh, that that I really respect about it, that they knew it was good and they weren't going to have anyone tell them otherwise. And that uh, Superman character that they were sending around and that kept getting rejected, that had like – He had a similar outfit to, you know, like the Christopher Reeve Superman that we might think of from the movies. And like, as you said, the curl and the hair and the double identity. Did he have all that stuff? Yeah, he had it all. Double identity, Clark Kent. I mean, he couldn't fly yet and he didn't have (laughs) heat vision and freeze breath. That would all come later. But it was absolutely Superman. And at what point... Was Lois Lane part of the story? Did he have this double job where he was a journalist, you know, this nerdy Clark Kent? Was that all from the beginning? Yes. And that's kind of the genius of the character and I think the elegance of the character and why we're talking about him 80 years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there's almost nothing in pop culture that we talk about 80 years later. 
it's the Lois Lane aspect of it that he has. I mean, it's really a love story. It's not an action story. It's you know, how do you wrestle with your identity that you can't reveal um, to the person you love? And mm-hmm. I think that really struck a chord with kids and teenagers who were trying to define who they were um, and just didn't know yet. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Brad Ricca, author of the book Superboys, The Amazing Adventures of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman. Uh, so in 1938, right, Siegel and Schuster, they sold the rights to Superman, um, and they sold it for only $130. Why did they sell the rights for so little? Well, they'd been – I mean, that's like kind of the million-dollar question, again, with these, uh, you know, the It's like the billion-dollar question when it comes to Superman. <laughs> well, yeah, you're you're right. They had been waiting for so long for someone to buy it, and mm. finally – a guy came along, uh, Harry Donenfeld was the publisher and, and contacted him through his group of people, his cabal. And they said, yeah, we'd, we'd love to buy this for our new action comics. We'll pay you uh, 10 bucks a page. It's 13 uh, pages, 130 bucks. And, you know, there's a school of thought that they just wanted to finally sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that they were, you know, kind of being promised that if they sold it this way, they would eventually get a newspaper deal, which is what they really wanted, and that's where the money would be. But of course, you know, as I think most people know by now, they in signing this contract, they also sign away all rights to the character forever. So this is the very Cleveland part of the story, the very, you know, well, we do all this hard work, but then somebody in New York steals it. Um, no offense, New Yorkers. But it's kind of the, the tragic part of it. Um, I think part of this story is an American tragedy that these kids work so hard and, and they lose it at this point in the story. Of course, the story's not over. But the real question that kind of hangs over this whole transaction is did the publishers know they were getting uh, something big in Superman? And right. Of course, no one knows for sure until those documents surface uh, at some point out of a hidden bunker. Um, but to use the the popular words of today, I I really think that they were uh, bad actors in mm. all of this, that they they knew they were getting something big and took advantage of, of Jerry and Joe. You talk about Superman being a star, a much bigger star than just a comic book hero. In some sense, he was like Mickey Mouse, right? He was had an origin, but he existed way beyond that through fan clubs and and all sorts of things, you know, radio and television and and movies. And why was Superman in that really small category? Oh, maybe along with Mickey Mouse, of just totally transcending where he came from. Yeah, I think the place I most hear it and see it is when people talk about Superman is it's never the character, and we see this a lot now with the anniversary, it's never the character of Superman is 80 years old. It's Superman is 80 years old. Mm -hmm. Well, Superman's not a real person, but we talk about him like he is. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is just how much we can identify with the character. I mean, I think Mickey Mouse is great. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I don't have a lot in common <laughs> with a mouse wearing the suspenders and he talks real high. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I love Mickey Mouse. But I think Superman speaks to so many different things about 
just human experience. I think it, it, in the short version, I think he speaks to an American experience. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, this weird thing of we don't have history. I mean, we, we know, hear these stories about George Washington and the apple tree, fictional or, or non-fictional, does it matter? Right. Right. But we also know the story of Superman's origin by the time we're eight right. and have no idea how we know this. Right, right. And it's just, again, it's that I think the real... Lowest common denominator that every other superhero has at least a bit of is the idea of the secret identity. That if only, and it doesn't matter who the other person is, it's just that feeling that if only they could see me for who I really am, everything would be different. No, I think that's really it. It really is that double feeling of like... In my heart, I know I can give this speech. I know I can impress this person. Yeah. I know I, I, I'm capable of all those things. Yeah. But, like, somehow when I open my mouth, it yeah. just isn't <laughs> – like, the vision I have in my heart does not – that is yeah. not what materializes. And people make fun of me. And and they're Superman. Like, he knows in his heart who he is. Yeah. But people just can't see it. And Superman tells you you can't. Yeah. He's the one yeah. who says, I see that part of you Mm -hmm. Um, because he can do it he you know opens up the shirt and there he is yeah Um, but it's about that tension and that just I'm not sure if I'm good enough I don't know if she or he um, or they will will see me for who Mm -hmm. I I really am that I think that makes it universal Brad Ricca is the author of the book Superboys, The Amazing Adventures of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman. Brad, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. It was really good. On our website, we've got Brad Ricca talking about a huge problem that confronted Superman just after his comic book debut, World War II. The problem was, despite pleas from the public, Superman could not go to war because, of course, he'd immediately defeat the Axis powers, and that would lead to some serious cognitive dissonance. So the writers came up with a way to keep him out of combat. He does the eye test. And he gets it wrong. And they're like, sir, you're uh, 4F, you know, you you can't serve in the army. And he realized that he had his x-ray vision on and he read the chart like six rooms down. uh, (laughs) uh, It's just really stupid. But then he says, well, I, I will serve here in America. The story of Superman and the war is at innovationhub.org. We all know that there's an achievement gap in the U.S., one that means that if you're born middle class, you're more likely to end up in college than if you're born poor. If you finish college, you're likely to replicate, in terms of wealth, the status of the family that launched you towards college in the first place. If you don't attend or you don't finish college, you too are likely to replicate the status of the family you grew up in. When we're creating education policy, when we're designing schools, the question we don't ask often enough is... When does this gap open up? By three years of age, you're already going to see that gap among lower-income and middle-income families. It's dramatic. It's dramatic. 
Kathy Hirsch-Pasek is a co-director of the Temple University Infant and Child Lab in Philadelphia, and she's an expert on child brain development. We found that lower-income five-year-olds look more like middle-income three-year-olds in their understanding of language. All right, so this is all going on very, very quickly. And though an achievement gap at such a young age seems impossible, Hirsch-Pasek says it's not only real, it's something that everyone should care about, even if you've never had young kids. You can see it in language, where some people have talked about the 30 million word gap, Hmm. which then relates to language and, as I said, literacy. You can see it in spatial skills, the ability to put something together with blocks, the ability to do puzzles, which relates to your later mathematics ability. Hmm. And you see it in their ability to have this fancy term called executive function skills. I love that term. And <laughs> Sounds that like they're two, their, uh, but yet they're CEOs also. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it has to do with like their attention and their memory and their planning and their flexibility and thinking. And we know that some of the skills that you groom in early childhood take you up to school readiness and then take you all the way through school and beyond. And if you're better in first grade, chances are you're going to be better in third grade. If you're better in third grade, chances are you're going to be better in fifth and eighth and twelfth. And more likely to graduate, more likely to get a job, and more likely to be successful. Hirsch Pasek is the co-author of Becoming Brilliant, What Science Tells Us About Raising Successful Children. And though little kids, so let's say one-year-olds who are teething and drooling and just trying to walk across the room without falling over, while they may not seem like they're learning a ton, they are. If I could learn at the rate that our kids learn, I would think it absolutely marvelous. Do you know that a 19-month-old kid is learning up to nine new words a day? Now, I want you to think about that. America has one of the worst preschool attendance rates among developed countries. And we may be ignoring the research about the power of the years from zero to five at our peril. In a 2017 study of more than 30 industrialized nations, only Turkey had fewer three-year-olds in preschool programs. Now, it's important to note that Americans spend a ton of money on childcare for their own kids. But the government spends, on average, about half of what other industrialized countries spend on the years leading up to kindergarten. And that brings us back to that stubborn gap, which we do try to address in elementary school. But by that time, it might be too late. It turns out that you cannot be a good reader if you don't have good language skills. It's impossible mm -hmm. because you can sound out the words, but if you don't know what the words are sounding into, mm -hmm. then you're lost. Mm -hmm. I used to do that when I went to Hebrew school. I was really good at sounding things out, but I didn't know what the words meant when right. I finally translated <laughs> right. it. Right. And, <laughs> right. And so good communication skills like language have to be built before you get to be a good reader. Hmm. And it turns out that if you don't have anyone to talk with, and notice I didn't say talk to, mm -hmm. so you don't have good collaboration, you're not going to get good communication. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have good communication, you'll never get good content. And if you don't have good content, I agree with everybody that school's about content, then you can't move on to critical thinking, hmm. which is equally, if not more, important in today's world.
And I think that if we don't prepare well in the first five years of life, our children aren't going to be ready for school. So if we want a strong society with a very well-prepared workforce, then we think need to think seriously about early childhood. Hmm. And that is what we need to put into place now, high-quality early childhood programs. We've been thinking primarily about these programs from kids who are three to five. Mm -hmm. But I think the next horizon is also to think about kids who are babies Mm -hmm. up to age three. Um, You talked about the fact that, amazingly, there are already disparities uh, by age three that are opening up. Um, And we touched on the 30 million word gap, this research that shows that by age three, you've got lower income kids who are hearing roughly 30 million fewer words than higher income kids. What else, I wonder, apart from that 30 million uh, word gap that has been studied, do you think is driving some of these differences in achievement? Well, a lot of people suggest that this executive function stuff is very important. What do we mean by that? What we mean is building a foundation for attention, knowing that you should pay attention and that you can sustain that attention on something that's going on in the world around you. Flexibility. That means I can be doing one task, but if something else comes up, I can actually switch to something new. And you know, there are some kids who are great at that and some who are terrible. Mm -hmm. It also has to do with memory. I mean, we have to work on memory. You have to exercise your brain the same way you exercise your muscles. And when we allow our children to play games, whether it's in the car or on the way to school or in your home before bed, they can actually build better memory skills. I I know some countries have universal preschool that starts when kids are four, some three. Uh, France is testing uh, school for two-year-olds. When we think about, like we were talking before about there's a gap between, you know, some kids who are maybe way ahead and some kids who are not. They haven't heard those same words. They haven't been exposed to the same kind of math, whatever. How young should we uh, start school? (laughs) Well, you know, it's a funny thing when you say start school. Um, that that sounds like, you know, school marm desks and yep, yep. somebody dispensing knowledge from the front. <laughs> right. <laughs> and when you talk about a good preschool, um, yes, it's got structure and it's got high-level content going on with people reading books and people playing puzzles and people playing with blocks, but it's not going to look like desks in a row. Mm-hmm. So think more of a kind of, you know, structured playtime, which is the way we think it would best be done. And and maybe even best be done as we move into the elementary school, and I even use it in college. Hmm. Now, um, parents also may want to be in the game. And what we're not talking about, let me underscore that in red, what we are not talking about is taking kids away from their parents. Right. A lot of the programs can be home visiting programs. Hmm where, you know, parents have an opportunity to drop in or we drop in with where parents are at. And in a new program that, um, that I've initiated with Brookings, we're doing what we call learning landscapes. And in learning landscapes, we're saying, hey, kids only spend 20% of their waking time in school, even when they're there full time. Huh. What could we be doing in the environment 
around the kids. Where do kids go? What do our supermarkets look like? In one study, we put prompts in supermarkets. <laughs> they didn't look school marmy at all. What did you do in supermarkets? We had signs. Okay. And the signs would be crazy signs like, I'm a cow. I have milk. What comes from milk? Now, you might not expect that this would make a difference. But it turned out that it did make a difference. We got a 33% increase in parent-child interaction uh-huh. yeah, when the sense. signs were up. Right. As right. opposed to when the signs were down. Right, right, right. All of a sudden you start talking about where does yogurt come from and where does cottage cheese exactly. come from and everything. Yeah. And, and what's that weird purple vegetable? And it turned out to make <laughs> right. an impact in the low-income neighborhoods but not the middle-income neighborhoods. And in hmm. Tulsa where they actually put in more what we call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics signs. Gosh, people started talking about number, and they started talking about math. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, emboldened by that idea, um, I actually thought, well, why couldn't we build a bus stop that had a bench that had puzzles on the back? I mean, people sit and wait at the bus stops. And we did that at 40th and Lancaster on a very lot where Martin Luther King gave one of his speeches for the Freedom March, we put in puzzles. Hmm. And we put in a way to build language. We called it stories. And we built an executive function hopscotch where you had to think before you jump (laughs) so you don't do things that are impulsive. And people are now not just looking at their cell phones. They're playing at the bus stop. So I think we have to think beyond schools to, um, to think about our environments and how, while we're also thinking about city revitalization, we can put learning landscapes into those cities. In Seattle, just one more example, they're going to do safe sidewalks to school. And we're going to implant in the sidewalks games that can foster learning. Wow. We can do this. Is there a city or a country um, where Mm -hmm. you look at what they offer for early childhood and you think this is really, really effective in terms of both what they do for the kids, but then also this kind of long term, like boosting the competitiveness of the country and, you know, Mm -hmm. in ultimately uh, creating a workforce that's ready and that's flexible and that's educated and all of that? You know, there are two countries that come to mind. Um, One is Finland, which everybody uses. They have, you know, such a wonderful way of treating parents with good family leave and early childhood programs that work and that are aligned with the school programs. And they were very conscious in designing the Finnish school system so that they not only uh, aligned as you started school, but that parents were involved and that it connected at the other end with this cradle to career idea. The second country is Canada. Canada is doing an amazing job. And they started um, more recently a more aligned system between their kindergarten and preschool uh, period and their formal education in elementary school period. And they're doing a great job. Now, you might ask, when the kids get to be 15, how do these countries score on the PISA tests that everybody is consumed by? And the answer is one and five. Okay, so pretty well is the answer. <laughs> that's that's the answer. Yeah. If you do well by your kids, you do well by a society. And if you recognize that we cannot train our children for today, 
We need to train them to be excellent tomorrow and to have choices tomorrow and to be flexible tomorrow so they can relearn when a computer does better than they do at their very job that they were trained for. Mm -hmm. We need lifelong learners. Kathy Hirsch-Pasek is a co-director of the Temple University Infant and Child Lab. She's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a co-author of Becoming Brilliant, What Science Tells Us About Raising Successful Children. Kathy, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. City of stars, are you shining just for me? If you're wondering... Why we're playing the song City of Stars from the movie La La Land, it's because the lyrics were co-written by Kathy Hirsch-Pasek's son, Benj. The song, by the way, won him an Oscar. Here is what Benj said during his acceptance speech. I want to thank my mom, who is amazing in my day tonight, and she let me uh, quit the JCC Soccer League to be in a school musical. So this is dedicated to all the kids who sing in the rain and all the moms who let them. Thank you very much. I love you, Mom. On our website, we've got more about Kathy Hirsch-Pasek's work on early childhood education and a clip of her in the audience at the Oscars watching that speech. And through the smoke screen of the crowd, In the late 1870s, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad cut pay for workers by 10 percent. The workers erupted. There were bloody strikes, and the strikes in which many people died, property was set on fire, they were not just because of one decision by one railroad. They were about unfairness. In those last decades of the 19th century, labor conditions and pay seemed morally wrong to many people. Work on railroads and in coal mines and in steel mills It was backbreaking. It was poorly paid. And meanwhile, a few fabulously rich men controlled huge swaths of the economy, often by eliminating the competition. One woman from Illinois, Elizabeth McGee, felt so enraged by the situation that she created a board game to show people what was really going on in the country and what had to be changed. She called it the landlord's game. And she brought it to a game manufacturer, Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers took a look at it and they rejected it. They thought it was way too complicated. It wasn't until decades later, until handmade copies of the landlord's game had already become super popular, that Parker Brothers finally bought the rights. But by that time, it had a simpler title, Monopoly. Author Tristan Donovan argues that board games have reflected culture for a long time, which may be why they're making a major comeback. He's the author of the book, It's all a game. The history of board games from Monopoly to Settlers of Catan. Tristan, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. So let's start right there with Monopoly. Um, Why would somebody who cared about an issue, and Elizabeth McGee cared about a, a fairer tax system in her mind, why would you create a board game to kind of make this social political point? Well, she wanted to get the message out as widely as possible. And she tried many different routes. Um, She tried writing essays and articles, but she felt, you know, that's not connecting with the mass of people if just sort of writing in some obscure journal. So she thought a game would be a great way to teach children particularly about the values she wanted to get across. Mm-hmm. And in a kind of safe way that kind of didn't feel too political, it's like, oh, you can play a game and also learn about why her tax ideals were better. 
Right. Did you feel like in in researching tons and tons of board games, did you feel like they were often created to make a political point or to make a social point? Actually, I think Monopoly was quite rare in having its origins in a political point. Mm. Often there wasn't much thought behind it in terms of politics. It was more, oh, what will be fun? Mm -hmm. But I think as time went on sort of board games get attached to politics in mm. in ways they don't expect to be so um, game of life for example the way it's evolved kind of reflects how society changes and our ideals change so you see the kind of more gas guzzling cars of the original right. 1960 <laughs> edition becoming more eco-friendly after the oil crisis so things like that sort of affect board games Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about Monopoly is that, you know, it was created, as I said, to show like, oh, there's all these monopolists. They are hoarding everything for themselves. They're taking, they're crushing everybody else. And the message of the game, I would argue, was totally lost because in Monopoly, what you try to do is crush everybody else. And But people want to be monopolists. It doesn't really teach people Having a monopoly is bad. It taught people like, man, I wish it could be that guy, the really rich guy who has the monopoly. Yeah, absolutely. It backfired so spectacularly, that idea. Um, Obviously, sort of the message still in there. You play with four people, three of you are going to end up bankrupt and destitute, but one of you is going to have all the money. But we all kind of look at it and go, we want to be the winner. We want to be the person with all the money. So we don't notice that actually most of the people playing this game are just broken. Um, So when I think of board games, I think of Monopoly and Candyland and Clue, um, which have all come out in uh, about the last hundred years or so. Um, but one of the stories that you tell that really struck me was that um, in King Tut's tomb, they found a board game, which, by the way, it took a long time to figure out what that game was about and what the rules were and what the deal was with that board game. But people, I guess, have been playing board games for thousands of years. Yeah, we don't actually know how far it goes back. So the earliest archaeological finds we've got are around 3000 BC. So this is before ancient Egypt was founded. Um, So we could have been playing them way into the mists of time. We just have no idea how far back board games go. What we do know is they predate written word and we've been Mm -hmm. playing them for thousands of years. And do we know why King Tut was playing that board game? Like what did uh, people figure out? that it was ultimately what he was, you know, doing with that board game. Well, what they think it was is it actually became a religious sort of ritual in a way, a way to sort of interact with the afterlife and Mm. the dead. So you basically the game represented a a journey through the afterlife, um, according to the ancient Egyptian religion, and you would go through this journey and kind of, and they thought it'd be a way of learning your own fate. Um, Even though it was random dice rolls, they didn't really sort of Mm. see it as random. It was just, you go along and this tells you what your future in the afterlife is. And then if it's kind of bad, maybe you could change your ways. And then next time you play, it will be (laughs) more forgiving. So, um, because obviously at that time, people didn't really understand the concept of randomness. They thought it was some spiritual intervention was kind of controlling the dice. So I'm going to ask you about uh, a game I remember playing a lot as a kid. Um, and it actually inspired a movie that I've probably watched hundreds of times. And somehow it gets better when you watch it hundreds of times. Um, it's Clue, the, both the book and the movie. Um, 
where did Clue come from? And it's interesting now that I think about it, though, I don't think I've ever thought about it before. It's funny that little kids play a game that's about murder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but how did that come to be? So that started in Second World War. Um, so the guy who invented it, Anthony Pratt, lived in Birmingham in England. And at the time, he worked in a munitions factory. Um, and life in wartime Britain, apart from when you had air raids, was incredibly dull. The cinemas were shut, there was no petrol, there was nothing to do but go to work, and then at night you had to kind of put your blinds up, blow out your candles, because the Luftwaffe were coming over and bombing. Mm -hmm. So it, it was kind of pockets of terror followed by days and days of tedium. And one of the things he remembered before the war that he really loved was this parlour game called Murder. It goes by different names, but it's where one one person in the room's the murderer and sort of taps someone on the shoulder and then they hmm. kill them and everyone has to try and work out who the murderer is. Okay. And so he he turned basically took that idea and his love of Agatha Christie novels and so on uh-huh. yep. and turned it into um, Clue. Right. And that that's essentially its origin. So he, he wanted to kind of recapture some of the fun he used to have in the 30s before um, war broke out. And was it um, immediately a popular game? It was a tough sell to the game publishers. Um, so he got a deal with in England with the company that published Monopoly over here. And they were like, oh, well, you know, murder, we're not, we're not too sure, but it's kind of all right. <laughs> exactly. That seems like maybe not your everyday family-friendly fare, a game about murder. Yeah. And then they tried to sell it to America. And the Americans were even more kind of, Parker Brothers was just like, we're family games company we can't right. have a game about murder and um in the uk mr green is the reverend green okay. um so they were like well we're definitely not having a clergyman kind of <laughs> killing people <laughs> so they took Makes sense. That okay got it yeah. and um and the original <laughs> rules I, I actually found a copy of sort of you know version where they were sort of making tweaks and they'd like crossed out references to murder and it all became the act <laughs> things like that so there was definite squeamishness about it they didn't even put much advertising behind it but obviously people bought it told right. other people and it just kept going and going so from the 1950s right through to its peak in sort of the mid 70s sales just kept rising year mm. on year on year and that doesn't really happen with board games so all their fears about murder being <laughs> unacceptable for board games was proven wrong right so let's talk about another game um, that was also similarly not considered all that moral, Twister. So I think of it as like a game that kids play at summer camp. Um, but you say when it first came out, there was a lot of resistance to it. Um, do you want to talk about why? Yeah. So this is the mid-60s. And we kind of, you know, now look back and go, oh, the 60s is a big sexual revolution time. But at the time Twister came out, that hadn't happened. Um, so the Supreme Court rulings about right to contraception and summer of love and all that stuff is yet to happen. And so there was still this social awkwardness about kind of men and women who aren't married kind of getting too close to each other. Hmm. So out comes this game Twister, which is like, well, let's get ourselves all tangled up trying to reach that. <laughs> and that's quite racy at the time. I mean, it seems right. kind of ridiculous, but that's kind of crossing social boundaries. And one of the competitors at the time was like, you're, you're selling sex in a box. This is outrageous. <laughs> um, sex in a box. Yeah. Who knew that that... I think of Twister as something that, like, 
six-year-olds play mostly. <laughs> um, but it's funny to think that people are so worried about it being so sexually charged. Yeah, Sears wouldn't stock it. I mean, they actually mm. halted production because Sears said, we're not stocking that game. It's right. just too much. Right. Um, and luckily it got, got a bit of break on um, The Tonight Show. Um, it, and on The Tonight Show with Johnny that, Carson? Yeah, that's right. Okay, um, okay. With Eva Gabor um, played it with him. <laughs> and that, that caught the nation's attention yep. um, and kind of saved Twister. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Tristan Donovan, author of the book, It's All a Game, the history of board games from Monopoly to Settlers of Catan. You write about how board games, which I think many people might think in some ways would have been displaced by by video games, by little games you can play on your phone, but just like the technology of games is so much more immersive now than like getting out Monopoly, that, that those things would be sort of the story of the past. But you're right, that is really not true, that in recent years, board games have undergone a renaissance. Talk about that and like, why is that? Yeah, well, I mean, to give you a sort of idea of how big that renaissance is so 2011 sort of world board game industry was making about five and a half billion dollars okay. um in 2016 seven billion so it's growing wow. fast okay okay and it's big and i think there are several things happening there's a little bit of nostalgia in there but on the whole the people who are getting into board games now are millennials they're a bit too old for board games right. from a nostalgia point of view you know they've uh-huh. grown up with the video right, games. right 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 but i think in some ways the games are much better so compared to the games that were available in the 70s they're better designed you there's less luck. You don't tend to get eliminated from the game. Um, it's less clear who's in front. Um, as we all know from Monopoly, you have that stage where it's clear who's going to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also people are pushing back a bit against this idea that everything's got to be digital. Our whole lives is going to be lived through a screen. I th- and I think board games help people get away from that. It helps them connect face to face and socially and i think there is a bit of a pushback there i don't think people are kind of throwing their smartphones into the bin to play board games but i think it's an escape from that right and do you feel like this is back to the future like where was there a time when uh getting together over board games was there a time in the past when that was also sort of a fun thing to do a good date you know is this new or is this retro in some ways? In, in some ways, it's retro. So um, in Europe, there were lots of chess clubs um, in the 19th century, um, which is where all the international chess tournaments grew out of. Um, and obviously, they brought people together to play chess and have a drink with each other. Um, and also sort of, you know, the whole pub culture that you have here in Britain and sort of bars and America, um, often they had board games and people would sit down and play them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, you'd have this traditional thing of, you know, it might be chess or backgammon or something like that. So it would be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, it's going back to what people have always done. In a way, we kind of lost that for a, a decade or two, but have now returned to it. You know, we've talked about like games of the past, like Monopoly and stuff that reflected a kind of you know, social struggle maybe or political issues of the time. Are there board games today that you would say these reflect our social or political issues now? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's it's always harder to tell what they are when you're right in the middle of it. But I think right, even right. a game like Catan, um, it says something about sort of the German kind of viewpoints on the world that people, even if when they're competing, need to work together. And I think that's mm. a theme that's coming out in a lot of the newer board games, that mm. there's always a cooperative element. Um, you get some like Pandemic, where all the players are on the same side. Some like Catan, where... They're competing and there's only going to be one winner, but everyone has to trade or cooperate with someone to some extent. And that's quite a contrast to the middle of the 20th century when all the games are about, well, who's going to win? And there's only one winner and everyone else is a loser. So it's become much more, um, I guess, kind of teamwork based games now compared to middle of the 20th century. Tristan Donovan is the author of the book, It's All a Game, the History of Board Games from Monopoly to Settlers of Catan. Tristan, thank you so much. Thank you. One final note here. Donovan says that chess, which is probably the most famous board game of them all, has undergone a lot of changes over time since its origin in India. One of those changes came during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance when powerful queens in real life were reflected in the growing power of the queen on the chessboard. We've got more about how chess has changed, plus our recent interview with the great champion, Gary Kasparov. It's at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Shirkerts. We also have production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.